0: Welcome, here is this past Sunday sermon from Grant Memorial Church. Well, good morning, Grant Memorial. It is great to be with you on this beautiful August morning. My name is Cam, I'm one of the pastors here at Grant. Uh, and I've got to admit that uh, getting up on the platform to preach the text that we find ourselves in today is extremely difficult to do without an exodus of small children with palm branches running off the stage going back to their grant kids classrooms as we all beam from the cuteness overload that we just experienced it's just not nearly as cute when I do it <laughs> but this morning As we continue our series, Walking Through the Gospel of Mark, we find ourselves at, you probably guessed it, the triumphal entry, where Jesus enters Jerusalem, inaugurating the final week of his earthly life on what is commonly referred to as Palm Sunday. So now that you know what we will be reading, I invite you to open your copy of the scriptures to Mark chapter 11 to actually read it together. We're going to be reading from Mark chapter 11, starting at verse 1. Mark 11, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered, as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that as we dig into it today, Lord, that that you would teach us something and that you would connect the dots in our hearts and in our lives so that we would leave here different than how we came. Amen. If if you have spent uh, much time in the church throughout your life, this is not only a passage that you are familiar with, but it is likely one of the passages that you have heard preached most in your life. Right up there with the Christmas story and Christ's death and resurrection. Because almost every church kicks off its annual remembrance of the Holy Week, right? The most important week in the Christian calendar, starting with this specific narrative of Jesus riding into Jerusalem. And the reason that I point this out, how familiar it is, is that this text has the potential to be really extremely difficult for me to preach and for you to listen to, Because there's not much left in this text that you have not heard at some point along the way, and that I have not taught before. And so with that acknowledged, that today's message may not be full of new, mind-blowing information, I pray that we would approach it humbly, with humility, asking God to bring to light what he would have us know from this familiar passage, whether we're hearing it for the first or the 25th time. Now, our text starts off by saying in verse 1, They, Jesus and the disciples, uh, approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Okay, so for the past uh, couple of months, since chapter 9 to be exact, when Jesus came down from Mount Hermon after the transfiguration, Jesus and the disciples have been journeying south towards Jerusalem as their final destination. And along the way, Jesus has reminded them explicitly three times just why they were going there. Jesus had told them that when they reached Jerusalem, he would, as Mark 8.31 says, suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he would be killed and after three days rise again. That was their Jerusalem itinerary, right? Their journey was leading them to a cross where Jesus would die, and the location of that cross was Jerusalem, and the timing of that crucifixion was, well, now. Here in chapter 11, after their long journey, both in distance traveled and in terms of their three-year ministry, they have made it. They've reached the end, as they make their final descent into Jerusalem. You see, in a sense, what we celebrate as the triumphal entry is anything but triumphal, as his arrival in Jerusalem will mark the end of his pre resurrected life and ministry. You see, no one thinks of their entrance into a palliative care ward or a death row prison cell as celebratory or victorious, do they? But this is essentially what is happening to Jesus. From the moment he enters Jerusalem, he is, as they used to say in the penal system, a dead man walking. And while in hindsight, we know that Christ would be resurrected, that his kingdom would spread throughout the world, the disciples at the time have no guarantee, assuming they even understand what is going on, that when Jesus is killed, what will happen to them as well? This entrance into Jerusalem is like the point of no return. And this last week of Jesus' earthly life will be overwhelmingly difficult for his entire entourage. But before they get to Jerusalem's gates, the text says that they stopped in the region of Bethany. Now, Bethany is technically a Jerusalem suburb on the Mount of Olives, roughly two miles from the city or a 40-minute uh, commute by foot. Now, if you recall, Bethany is the town where Jesus' friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. And it would be in Bethany, that, uh, likely with these friends, that Jesus would retreat to sleep each night for the next week while he was in Jerusalem. Right? So he would come in during the day and do his ministry and teach, and then he would retreat back to Bethany where he was staying with his friends. And this was not in small part because Jerusalem was packed for the Passover. Don't forget, Jesus is not coming to Jerusalem at just any time, but his final week was the week of the Passover celebration. Or the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, where Jews celebrated their liberation from Egyptian slavery and remembered God's grace and mercy to them as he passed over their homes, sparing their lives as every firstborn in Egypt lost theirs. And so there, were, there were, was literally no place for Jesus and his followers to stay within the city walls as Jerusalem's population would swell to over three times its regular size as pilgrims and devotees from around the world descended on the holy city to participate in the festivities. And while I studied this text this week, I connected some dots for the very first time. That there was no room in Jerusalem, no place for Jesus to stay as his life came to an end, just as there had been no room for he and his parents to stay just 33 years earlier as his life began. Quite fitting that Jesus would go out of this world in a similar fashion to how he came into this world as as a king, but a king altogether different than the kings of this world. And that is how I would like us to unpack this text today. Because this passage is certainly a messianic passage, which means that it explicitly declares who Jesus is, that he is the king. But at the same time, this same passage emphasizes that Jesus was a different kind of king. And so we're going to see how this text specifically declares the kingship of Jesus while still challenging our own assumptions regarding what we might expect from a king like this. And so let's start with this whole business about the cult. The first proof or sign in this text that Jesus is king is in how he approaches and enters Jerusalem. The text says that Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Interestingly, there are no other descriptions of Jesus in the Gospels doing anything but walking. He walks for three years during his ministry, and yet here he rides into Jerusalem. This is intentional. And this is something that normal people just didn't do at the Jewish feasts or festivals. You see, the pilgrims who traveled from all over, even the ones who traveled their entire journey by animal would dismount and walk for the final portion of their journey as a part of the ritual remembrance prior to this festival. And so this entry uh, by Jesus, who had walked the entire journey except the final few kilometers riding on an animal, was an intentional statement about who he was. And that intentional statement was that he was the one that Zechariah prophesied about in Zechariah 9. Let's take a look at Zechariah 9, verse 9 together. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The prophesied king in the Old Testament scriptures comes to the people, comes to Jerusalem, riding on a young male donkey or a colt. And while Mark's text, you might have noticed, doesn't explicitly say donkey, uh, Matthew and John's accounts specified that the colt in question was a young donkey. Matthew 21.2. Go ahead. Go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her or John 12:14 Jesus had found a young donkey and sat on it. All right? So Jesus procuring a young donkey and riding him into town pronounces himself as the expected Messiah promised in the Old Testament because the one who rides the colt into Jerusalem is the king. Now, there are additional details here that serve to further confirm the intentionality of Jesus in making this statement about himself. First of all, do you see the way that Jesus acquires the cult? He commandeers it. In the ancient world, the practice was known as uh, angaria or impressment. And what it did was it allowed the king to claim temporary rights of the property of his subjects when he needed it. Now, you've seen this kind of thing in all those movies where cops Right, Take civilians' cars to chase bad guys after crashing their own vehicles. You know what I'm talking about. And by the way, I looked into it, and police in Canada do have the right to commandeer your vehicle in case of an emergency. In fact, if you refuse or resist, you can actually face up to two years in prison. Now, this has nothing to do with our text, (laughs) but I think we should all know this. Right? This is just good life information. Well, in Jesus' time, uh, this rite was, was reserved for the king, right? Or, or the, the, the king's um, representatives, right? And Jesus here plays the king card. Right? In verse one to three, we read how it goes down. It says, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're doing this, say, The Lord needs it, right? The king needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. The Lord needs it. The king needs it. Jesus is claiming temporary rights as king. Now, just for the record, I don't encourage anyone here to actually try this. Uh, last week, when Sean and I saw a brand new Tesla, we tried to take it. <laughs> we tried to tell people that Steve needs it, and we'd bring it back shortly. It didn't, it didn't go over well, so save yourself the hassle. But it did work for Jesus, as we see in verse 6, not only in securing a ride into Jerusalem, but also to, to declare his kingship. Now, uh, one more important detail is that the cult, verse 2 says, has never been ridden. Now, why is this important? Well, according to the Mishnah, and we've talked about the Mishnah uh, so far in our series, but the Mishnah is the ongoing interpretive tradition of the Torah. Uh, Mishnah Sanhedrin 2, verse 5, to be precise, said that no one but the king may ride on the king's horse. And so uh, kings were given animals that were not already broken in by anyone else. So again, what seems to be a small detail is another intentional statement by Jesus about who he is. As the king, my transportation is to be unused and unblemished, reserved for me and me only. And it just seems as we read through this, and there's more things I don't even have time to point out, but it seems that each and every detail in Jesus' transportation into Jerusalem intentionally declares that Jesus is the king, the one God's people have been waiting for. Now, this is really important that Jesus here clearly declares who he is, right? Because What have we seen Jesus do throughout this gospel up until now regarding his identity? He's typically tried to keep it hidden, right? We've talked about the messianic secret, how Jesus has a number of times throughout the gospel uh, told those that he ministered to to keep his identity a secret. Don't tell anybody who I am. And yet here, the messianic secret is over. The messianic secret comes to an end in this moment. This entrance screamed, I am the Messiah to a Jewish people who are waiting for this precise event. As we said before, he has reached the point of no return. Which is why they joined in and began to give Jesus the red carpet treatment, which is the second point. Jesus receives the red carpet treatment. Not only does Jesus travel towards Jerusalem like a king, but he is received along the way like a king. Verse 8 to 10. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. All right, the crowd took their cues from Jesus. They, they read the prophetic signs and joined in following themselves the command of Zechariah nine. Do you remember what that said? It said, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion shout daughter jerusalem see your king comes to you righteous and victorious lowly and riding on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey the people responded to jesus riding on the colt of a donkey by obeying themselves the words of this prophet by rejoicing greatly and shouting right and and in their rejoicing they lay their cloaks on the road along with branches reminiscent of how they treated kings of old throughout their history from the coronation of King Solomon in 1 Kings 1, as he entered to fanfare on David's mule, to the induction of Jehu as king by Elijah in 2 Kings 9.13, where people laid their cloaks out on the steps before and under him, to the entrance into Jerusalem with palm branches of Simon Maccabeus, prince and high priest of Judea, after he secured peace for Jerusalem, roughly 200 years before Jesus' arrival here, which can be read about in the Jewish historical book, 1 Maccabees. When you look throughout Israelite history, it is evident that the people were treating Jesus like the kings and high priests who had come before him, laying cloaks, waving palm branches, uh, associated as a symbol of peace and shouting praise. These were clues about what they thought about him. And what we hear the crowd shout along the way is Hosanna, right? They sing Hosanna, which literally means save now, right? That's what Hosanna means. It means save now. But by this time, it had also become a a word used just to praise God because they knew that he would Follow through on what he had promised. But either way, the crowd was attributing saving power to Jesus. He wrote in and they said, You can save us. Right? They were associating his work with the very work of God. Now, in addition, they declare what turns out to be song lyrics. You see, the people aren't just shouting, they're singing. And they're singing one of the traditional psalms associated with the Passover festival that is taking place. Uh, look at Psalm 118. And Psalm 8, 118 is one of the Hallel psalms that was used liturgically at the Feasts of Tabernacle and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this is what Psalm 118, 25 to 26 says Lord, save us. Hosanna. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. Sound familiar? Right? It's, it's what people are saying in the text. right? This, Psalm 118, is one of the psalms or one of the songs that these pilgrims, these crowds, would be singing this week anyways at the festival. And here... They are directing their words, these ancient lyrics, at the one whom they were written about. Think about that. Imagine one day when we will sing, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Or, Great is thy faithfulness. Or insert your favorite worship lyric here in the presence of the physical Christ. Now know this, when we worship, we are always in the presence of God right, singing to him, and I encourage you uh, to think that way, but I imagine that singing, thank you for the cross, Lord, or holy, 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 may present a different experience when we're staring into the holes in the hands of our risen Savior, right, what a joy that will be, and that is what's happening here. These people who had sung this psalm their whole lives about an abstract hero that would one day come were looking directly at him as they sang this time. Right, isn't that amazing? Their reactions were right. He is, he was the king. And while they treated him as such, while they were right about who he was, As we'll see a little bit later, they were wrong about what he had come to do. Which brings us to the third point. This text declares Jesus' kingship in the fact that he had a clear mission. He had a clear mission. You see, Jesus didn't come to Jerusalem as a pilgrim, like the rest of the crowds. Jesus didn't come to Jerusalem as a tourist. He came to Jerusalem on a mission that would ultimately change the entire world and establish an everlasting kingdom. Like a, a king entering a city, either their own or one they entered on conquest, Jesus knew that his presence would demand something and that ultimately he would establish rule and reign in this city and beyond which is what we see in the seemingly anticlimactic ending of this passage. You see, after coming to the city with fanfare, full of messianic and royal implications, upon entering the city, verse 11 says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple courts. We're like, yes. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve what that's it he walked into the temple looked around and then went home following this grand entrance Jesus turned back around leaving the city walking back over the leaves and branches that were still no doubt there he traveled the two miles back to Bethany and went to sleep for the night what is that about That's not what I expect to read. Can you imagine being one of the people who had been singing and following in total anticipation of what he was going to do and then then watching him go into the temple and you're like, oh, what's going to happen? And then you just watch him walk out in the other direction, right? Wasn't he here to do something? Did, did Did the Messiah just show up and then leave? Now we, again, have the rest of the story. So we know that what Jesus came to do, he would accomplish that week, but not that night. He did have a mission, and he would accomplish it, but it would need to wait. So what is it that Jesus was doing in the temple that evening? Why didn't he just wait until the next day to make his grand entrance? Well, the answer, in part, is we don't know. In fact, Matthew and Luke's account skip the evening's retreat altogether, right? They simply tell us about Jesus entering and then what Jesus did in the temple the next day, right? And, and so they just skip right to what we're going to study next week. But, but Mark intentionally says he went home for the night, so, so, what is it that Mark is telling us about what Jesus did that evening? All right, is Mark continuing to tell us about his intentionality? That tomorrow morning's outburst in anger, spoil alert, in the temple, as, our, as commentator R.T. France puts it, will not be a spontaneous act of outrage, but a planned demonstration. Right? Is Jesus looking around at the temple courts, taking it in, planning his words as he looks around, thinking through what needs to be said and how to say it? Maybe. Or was Jesus taking in the glory of the temple while it was late and the crowds had left for the evening? Right? Was this his, his one chance to see the place of the worship of his father without the commotion of the marketplace catering to the thousands of pilgrims who would descend on it? Was Jesus remembering back to when he was 12 years old, teaching himself in the temple as a boy in his father's house, as he called it, when his parents had left him in Jerusalem on their way back to Galilee? Or deeper than that, was he remembering ancient days of old when he, as the pre-incarnate son, was in part the object of worship in this very temple and the tabernacle that preceded it? Where the temple was a tabernacle, was a living prophecy of himself. All right, we just don't know for sure. It could be a combination of these things. But we do know that whatever he was doing, he was not looking at something that he had no stake in like a tourist, but he was looking at it as the king of kings and the great high priest. As David E. Garland observes. Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem is not that of a gawking tourist marveling at the magnificent temple, nor of a pious worshiper offering pray- prayer or sacrifice. He comes as Lord and King inspecting his domain. On the next day, he will render his judgment. As with the way that he entered the city, Jesus inspects the temple as the one who owns it all, as the king. Right? It's clear that this text screams who Jesus is. He is the anticipated Messiah. He is the king. Right? And what, what does that mean for us? It means that he is the one that we trust. He is the one in control. He is the one who is above anything and everything that we may find ourselves up against. And it is appropriate for us at each and every turn, every morning, to shout Hosanna. God, save me. Blessed are you. You are my king. But as we noted before, this text also shows us how this king is different. He's a different kind of king. And it does so in three corresponding ways to the three points that affirm his royalty in this text. All right, so first of all, our first point, while the king does ride into Jerusalem, he does so humbly on a donkey. Right? He rides into Jerusalem, but he does so on a donkey. Right? He rides in as any king would, but he does it without the noble steed or the war horse that one would expect of a king. Pastor Mark Dever from Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., reflects on the significance of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem in contrast to other leaders in history, specifically the Islamic prophet Muhammad. It says this, The contrast is best symbolized by the way Muhammad entered Mecca and Jesus entered Jerusalem. Muhammad rode into Mecca on a war horse surrounded by 400 mounted men and 10,000 foot soldiers. Those who greeted him were absorbed into his movement. Those who resisted him were vanquished, killed, or enslaved. Muhammad conquered Mecca and took control of its new relig- took control as its new religious, political, and military leader. Today, in the Topkapi Palace in Istanbul, Turkey, Muhammad's purported sword is proudly on display. On the other hand, Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey, accompanied by his 12 disciples he was welcomed and greeted by people waving palm fawns a traditional sign of peace jesus wept over jerusalem we read that in luke 19 because the jews mistook him for an earthly secular king who was to free them from the yoke of rome whereas jesus came to establish a much different heavenly kingdom jesus comes by invitation not by force Right? And this comparison, this is not restricted to Muhammad. Right? This was the standard entry of a leader into a town that they were taking or their own upon returning. Jesus' entry is the exception. I think about the, the original hearers of this gospel. Right, We've talked about how the original hearers of this gospel, it was written for the uh, underground church in Rome they would have known firsthand what it looked like when a political or military leader came to town, riding on a war horse with throngs of warriors, demanding the praise of the people by force. Can you imagine how this would have been such a contrast for these early Christians to know that their king, not like Caesar, not like these Roman military leaders, but their king entered on a donkey in peace, rather than with a show of power and strength. Jesus is a king, but he's a different kind of king. Secondly, while it's true that Jesus got the red carpet treatment of a king, it was by pilgrims, specifically those outside of town who didn't understand Right? Now, that's kind of a three-pronged response, but it's true. First of all, there is no mention, notice, of any nobility present. There was no one of social significance. There was no formal celebration aside from the improvised processional of the crowds. There was no one, no service led by the religious elites to welcome Jesus. In fact, Luke, uh, in Luke's account of this entrance... There were some religious leaders in the crowd, but they weren't here to receive Jesus. They were there to shut the whole thing down, telling Jesus to rebuke people for saying what they were. Look at Luke 19, 39 to 40. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. It's a good response, but this is hardly... The victorious entry of a king with the high-status religious elites uh, shouting at him on his donkey to make the whole thing stop. Those who joined in the celebration were the simple pilgrims, the nobodies, and the ruralites. Did you notice that? This processional actually took place prior to Jesus' entry into the city. I don't know if that's new for you, but often in our Sunday school books and our flannel board stories, the pictures are of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. You even see the gate behind him where then he is greeted with shouts of praise and branches. But this processional actually takes place prior to Jesus coming to Jerusalem. Verse 11 tells us that after the processional was done, that Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple courts, right? The singing, the branches, the declarations are described as happening prior to his entry to Jerusalem, and after he enters, there's no further mention of it, right? It doesn't seem like those living in the city, the social higher-ups, had much interest in this guy riding on the donkey, which is a far cry from the attention that a conquering king would have received through every street. And the worst part, wasn't just that the people who welcomed jesus were outside the city or low social status the worst part is that even those who did come out those who shouted praise at jesus didn't understand what he was coming to do right they didn't necessarily know what they were celebrating you see while the audience of their shouts was right they were praising jesus and while their declarations that jesus was king and the awaited messiah were also right their cries and shouts were based on the understanding that he was coming as a military leader to conquer Rome and make Israel the ultimate earthly empire. Which is why, in less than a week, the crowd, which likely consisted of many of those shouting Hosanna here, would be shouting instead, crucify him. They were certain, as we've seen the disciples all throughout the text, that the Messiah's coming meant military victory, that he was a king like all of the others, that military conquest was his mission. Which brings us to our last point: while Jesus came to Jerusalem with a clear mission, his mission was to die. His mission in coming to Jerusalem, in contrast to what the Jews there thought was not to conquer the Romans, but rather to be killed by them so he could ultimately achieve a greater purpose than simply accomplishing a nationalistic agenda. You see, at the beginning of our discussion today, we discussed Zechariah's prophecy of the Messiah riding into Jerusalem. Well, if we continue reading, we see his purpose in doing so, Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It continues I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Did you catch all of that? Why does this king ride into Jerusalem on a donkey? So that through him, God would bring peace to what did our text say? All nations. Right, This message in Zechariah 9, and therefore the mission of Jesus, is about peace, not of war. Jesus is not coming to initiate war with the Romans. He's coming to save the Romans, along with every tribe, tongue, and nation. Jesus' kingdom is not a nationalistic Jewish kingdom. It's an empire above every other empire, and one that brings kingdoms together under the banner of his rule and reign. As Old Testament scholar Joyce Baldwin writes about Zechariah 9, Peace is to be declared to all nations and ensured by the presence of the righteous king ruling over a worldwide empire. The chariot, the war horse, and the battle bow and their modern equivalents will be banished for they will be entirely incongruous when there is a ruler competent to care for the true welfare of all nations." The promise of Zechariah 9 that Jesus is pointing towards is that he is a king who will supersede nations. God is not nationalistic. He's not bound by a flag or an anthem. Friends, God is not pro-American or anti-Russian. God is not on Canada's side cheering in the Olympics with a maple, maple leaf on his jersey, right? Fighting against our national enemies, Now, God is opposed to evil, absolutely, stands against it, but evil exists in every nation, in every empire. There are men and women created in God's own image, whom he loves more than we could ever know, who live in every country from Afghanistan to Zimbabwe, and his desire is not to crush one nation in favor of another, but rather that his children from every tribe, Tongue and nation will come under his rule, under no flag but the banner of Christ, when he establishes a kingdom that will last forever. This king is the prince of peace, whose plan from the beginning was not just to come and fight and save Israel, but through them to save the entire world. Galatians 3.8. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. Philippians 2, 10, and 11, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. First John 2.2, 2, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Revelation 5.9, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchase men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. I could go on and on. There's about 75 verses that say salvation is for the nation's. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he was not thinking about shedding the blood of Romans or shedding the blood of others for military conquest. Rather, he was thinking about shedding his own blood to put an end to all military conquest. For his kingdom that will come in its fullness soon is a kingdom of peace for all who will receive it and submit to the king who is unlike any other king. I want us to wrap up today with the words from Revelation 7-9 which speaks of what will one day take place in that international kingdom of God. It says, After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. What were they doing? They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. There will be a day when King Jesus is celebrated and received with palm branches yet again. And while the mission was misunderstood 2,000 years ago, by those holding palm branches as Jesus rode towards Jerusalem, there will come a day when you and I and perhaps some who were even there the first time, along with all those who cry out, Hosanna for Christ to save them, will see Jesus and will know exactly who he is and what he has done as we wave our branches to the one and only true king who brings peace to all nations, who brings peace to every heart. Would you pray with me? God, help us to know what it means that you are king in our lives, Lord. Connect those dots, Help us to know what it means that you are in control, that you are the king that everything else submits to you. God, help us to be people who know that you are in control, that we are not, and who shout, God, save me, be my king each and every day. And God, help us to know what it means that you're a different kind of king. God, you are seeking after things that are right and good, and that may not completely align with my idea of right and good all the time. God, help us to submit knowing that you are king and we are not. And God, help us to know what it means that your kingdom is a kingdom of peace. Or that as we seek you, as we pray, Lord, that we wouldn't pit ourselves against other people, other nations, Lord, we wouldn't pit ourselves against uh, the neighbor or our our ex or whoever it happens to be, God, that we wouldn't play that game, that we would know that your kingdom is a kingdom of peace that that desires good and salvation for everyone. God, help us to join with you as your subjects in living out a kingdom of peace, both now and forevermore. Pray these things as we shout with our lives, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening with us. For more information about our church or upcoming services and events, please visit us at grantmemorial.ca or on social media at @GrantMemorialChurch. Grant Memorial Church.